Welcome back to the Dance Rants podcast. My name is Dylan Holly, and I'm here with Hayden Idris. And today we have our second guest, Mr. Sean Fitzgerald O'Hearn, all the hey. way from the States, currently living in Belgium, working with Eastman, previously worked for seven years with Palabolus Dance Theatre, correct? True story. Cool, great. Well, thanks for coming on, Sean. It's really it's a pleasure a- to have you. Yeah to be bridged together during this wonderful time. Yeah, it's, it's funny because uh, like this has become the norm to, to uh, you know, record and to interview and to like, I don't know, be at a distance from people and see you through a little window on the screen. But I guess this is probably how we would do this anyhow, because we're in, we're across bodies of water and in foreign places. True. Well, I guess the Netherlands isn't so bad, but yeah. I guess maybe you would but you're currently in Ireland, so. Currently, yeah, true. But, where are you actually here? I'm uh, in Arnhem in the Netherlands. So yeah, we all could have met up for a coffee for me, probably. Any excuse yeah. for to go to the Netherlands is a great place. You toured there, I think, with Palabolus before, long before you even were living here, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I did uh, two quite substantial tours in, in Holland. We had a fantastic producer who was really interested in sort of the old school Palabolus ethos of the Phys- super physical partnering and uh, brought us on tours that would you know include 30 or 40 shows over the course of a month or six weeks so it was a you know we we sat down oh. for a bit and um, toured to every single little small town in the Netherlands which is an interesting way to uh, get to know a place I mean certainly it's one of the great joys of being an artist a touring artist but uh, specifically in the Netherlands where we had the opportunity to go out to sort of smaller cities because in the Netherlands, you guys are truly blessed with um, amazing cultural sector that there's a, I mean, there's a theater in the downtown of every single town that I, I was really surprised by that the first time I visited. So, yeah, well, we're currently getting the knife in the funding sectors at the moment. Yeah, so I think that's the sort of broad, uh, that, that knife has a very long handle on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was more like a sword, I think. <laughs> yeah, true. I think due to Corona that a lot of places are now going to pull more funding because I know in Brabant, the southern province of the Netherlands, that they're looking at cutting funding because there's a big thing online about that at the moment. Well, I mean, even yeah. right before Corona, we had uh, a substantial reduction in the funding for new projects in Belgium, which yeah. mostly affects emerging artists who would apply for this, uh, to this fund for essentially like new collaborations on a small scale. So the funding for like larger existing companies is a bit more secure, but if you're an emerging artist, can potentially be more hazardous. Yeah. It's always the way the little guy takes it on the chin, you know? Mm, yeah, well, they think there's the mindset you want to go with the more secure option, you know, the safe bet, which is just an ironic approach for art where you, mm. I if you want art to move forward, you should probably be supporting the ones who are pushing the boundaries and a bit more avant-garde and going to be actually, um, you know, expanding what it what the art form can mean. But I, I think that if you look at the states, for example, my my perspective is that they're a more exaggerated version where all of the funding goes to the large institutions and very few of them are pushing the boundaries of what the art form is. I'm mostly speaking now of uh, performing arts and dance in particular. 
but so you have these large institutions that have been around for you know, a relatively long time, which is a short time for modern dance um, whole. But yeah, there's just a, not a lot of boundaries being pushed by these big groups, but they sell shows and uh, that's what the theaters are concerned about. And even then in the States, it's still more sort of like donor reliant, right? Rather than government funding. I think the government funding works better here in Europe. That's an absolutely true statement. There is essentially zero government funding. I mean, the endowment for the arts in the States is essentially untouchable by people like me. Again, it's going to large um, foundations. And everybody relies, the, the majority of their funding is, is private donors. Yeah. So you have these posh fundraising events and you hope and try to appeal to the goodness and individuals rather than the assurance of a federal or any kind of government program yeah. that's like invested permanently in the arts you know you just try to bring that out and in, in wealthy individuals instead other than the like financial differences for support would you feel there's other big differences between here and your uh, here in america i think that the uh i mean i'm, I'm mostly exposed now to the belgian way of working and i think that i was in a, a particular place that was very collaborative in in Palopolis, and that's sort of like part of the definition of the company at least historically and i don't feel like there's a huge difference in the approach and the openness as far as the work i've made there and the work i've made here i think that there is more there is a, a bit more of an avant-garde feel here. And I think that, that comes from a sort of youthful grassroots kind of like campaign of making art as opposed to being a part of a large institution, which I mean, like what came first, the chicken or the egg? There's funding for that here more so than there in my experience. And so it's, it's easier to make that happen. And um, so maybe you know, is this situation because of funding or is the funding because of the situation? And I'm not yeah. totally clear about that. But the sort of like when you're in a good place and you have a supportive community around you, the artistic vibe is I think, really similar, you know, so mostly good people trying to make interesting stuff and, you know, failing a lot and succeeding occasionally. <laughs> yeah, because one thing I find interesting about America is that like every almost every college has a dance program right because you don't come from like a specifically like typical dance like one of these big dance schools it's a state college right yeah i think that's actually probably a really good point dylan that i didn't think about when you asked about the difference but the main infrastructure for producing dance i would say in the united states is collegiate surroundings so through mostly private college and university institutions, they are funding the making of modern dance. There are also many, many dancers pay their bills by working at a college. So whether they're producing professional stuff on the side or not, they're getting essentially paid by the college and then they have some money to be producing. But uh, yeah, through residencies and through more long-term employment, the dance scene in the United States is very based in colleges, which I, I think has sort of always been the case. I mean, with summer programs, like, you know, obviously dance is a, has a base in the youth, um, so it sort of makes sense. But 
that sort of intellectual, youthful ground is a fertile place for modern dance to be rising. And going back to the American Dance Festival when it was at Connecticut College, I believe, and, you know, was it 80 years ago or something now? With, Whoa. you know, Graham and like the, the, the American founders of modern dance, um, that was happening at colleges and it has continued that tradition today. And in Connecticut is where Palobolus is originally based, right? Um, yeah, well, originally it started at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, which is actually the state that I was born and raised in. Ah, okay. At, at, and um, by some guys who didn't have any kind of dance background at all, but they signed up for a uh, modern dance class to the story goes i mean what they've told me is that they 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 wanted to fulfill their pe credit but they didn't want to do physical education because they thought that would be like hard <laughs> hard and uninteresting so and and also they're he said and plus you know like the teacher was hot so, <laughs> which uh, turned into a long-standing relationship eventually um but what you really have is you know they sort of play it down as like yeah you know we didn't really know what we were doing we just kind of like you know fell into it and then we got positive feedback which is kind of how any of us get into anything i feel sometimes but uh, um really what you have is like the early 70s in the united states they're at an ivy league college they're super intellectual hippies they're experimenting with drugs it's uh, a time of free love and experimentation is highly uh, encouraged through both traditional means and also uh, like uh, psychedelics are coming around and you have this like massive wave of new age thinking both in the collegiate setting but also in in the broader world in politics and in opening things up we have the first time we're seeing women in positions of power in institutions it's in fact the first wave coming with uh, affirmative action and, and these different civil rights movements in the same era that we see female teachers teaching in these sort of coveted collegiate institutions. So it was like, the teacher is hot, like quote unquote, is, you know, might, <laughs> might be the case. But actually you have this old male teacher who has a strict way of teaching dance. And then you sort of the more important thing is that you have this new way of thinking and a woman comes in and offers a fresh perspective and is teaching a much more contemporary version of this art form, including a lot of improvisation and sort of softening the edges on what's wrong and, you know, like what, what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. And that's where like some jocks or like intelligent guy, whatever people, these sort of interesting thinkers and physical people who don't have any dance experience can actually come into a dance class and succeed and be yeah. encouraged by their teacher rather than told like you should probably stick to uh, whatever it was that you're studying yeah so palabalis what i've read at least and understand about them is that they were trying to push the boundaries or they didn't really know the boundaries of dance because of their lack of background in dance do you feel the company now 30 40 years on is still a representation of this of where they came from and the kind of principles they were founded on yeah, I guess they're next year they'd be turning 50. Whoa. Whoa. Um, and um, I think that there are elements of the spirit that remain and guide the company. And I think that it's an interesting question because Palabalas is always interested in reinventing itself and producing something new rather than reproducing something that they've made before. So that's an interesting 
position for a company, any kind of company to be in, because then 50 years later you ask, well, is it the still, still the same good old company that it used to be? And by definition of its nature of this desire and drive to reinvent itself, if it has succeeded in fact in what it set out to do, it should not be the same company. Yeah. So I think that it changes naturally and it is very different than what it set out as. And I think that it would sort of be proud of that. And is it a company now that employs educated dancers or it still is inclusive of people who are, maybe don't have a dance background? Historically, it really employed people without uh, traditional dance backgrounds, but now it certainly does. And I think that's more of a reflection of the broadening of what dance education means rather than a shrinking of the mind or a, a changing of the mind of Palopolis. But certainly there have been, um, during my tenure, also like circus artists, people with... Uh, you know, who have gone through Juilliard training and really formal dance education, and then people who have not gone to school but have grown up in a physical environment. And I would say that I'm somewhere in the middle of those. I have a pretty diverse movement background, and I also have a, a formal dance performance education through a liberal arts college where I was also studying ceramics. So it certainly wasn't a conservatory. Yeah, yeah that's cool. I like. Palobolus is Pilobolus, whichever way. Palobolus. Palobolus? <laughs> You're nailing it. Yay. <laughs> There's this amazing clip online you should look up. I think it's called What is Palobolus? And it just starts with maybe a dozen people from all over the world saying Palobolus. Like, <laughs> like introducing my, our next guest. And there is just everything on there from pillow balls to philobus and it's amazing including like you, you know people you write like oprah saying it wrong and it's just like <laughs> for her whole audience philobus <laughs> you almost got it it's really great you should look it up it's funny cool this is actually kind of what i want to talk about the fact that so many people know philobus and especially in america it became such a household name the company performed on the oscars i don't think very many contemporary modern physical theater whatever frame you want to put the dance company in but any company in the performing arts to be on something like the oscars is pretty huge for an audience expansive kind of thing yeah for sure i don't think many modern dance companies have the opportunity to be on primetime international television with millions and millions of viewers and um, I think that that was a real breakthrough for the company's work, especially with regard to shadow work, because that's what was featured on the Oscars. And they've since become really well known for this, which I think is an interesting part of their work because in, for, now, for today's era, because it is already made for a two-dimensional screen. When you sit in the audience and you watch it live, it's projected on the shadows end up on a, uh, this shadow screen. And so you are, in fact, watching a performance that is flat. Mm -hmm. And in the creative process, we make these shadow shows engaging on that flat screen. Uh, during the evening length works, they, the, the screens also go up and down. There's many different sizes of screens. We move them around. It's you know engaging. Um, and you also see live dance also. But the point being that that flat screen is what it's designed for, and so it therefore translates really well to your tablet or your computer or your phone, because that is also a flat two-dimensional screen. So we try to, you know, on our best day, we're making something that's dynamic and interesting in this flat space, and then it's 
when people grab it and put it on their phone, it still looks cool. Yeah. So I think it's sort of spread quickly because of that. Yeah, that's really interesting because that's something that we've been discussing a lot is how sort of our generation of creators or the choreographers that are existing can work better to translate dance to more of a film or a social media medium. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I think there's an interesting phenomenon right now with this isolation in regard to the COVID-19 pandemic that everyone is just opening up their sort of archives and sharing with the world their dance performances that they've made in the past. And I think that it's a very uh, difficult situation to navigate in the wanting to be generous and share, which I think is fantastic, and also keep the sort of conversation around dance going during this difficult time. And I think it lifts us all up to keep doing that. But I think it is not helpful to the art form to showcase on digital media recorded work that is intended for live viewing. For, in my opinion, for, unless it's dedicated and designed for two-dimensional platform, like your phone or whatever, it's not going to have the same impact that you originally intended. So you're watching a really washed out version of something that might be, in fact, really beautiful in, in its intended surroundings. And because it's 2020, we as soon as you're watching it on your phone or your computer, Instagram or Facebook or whatever, it enters a different realm of comparison. And we're, we're looking at all of these amazing videos that are, in fact, designed for that platform. And we're comparing those amazing videos with this dance video that is not intended for this platform. And it becomes like, ah, that's not like not as interesting, but actually it's just the wrong medium. So mm. like you, ha you have to sort of take that into account. You know, I don't want to be <laughs> my art to be competing with like the cutest cat videos on the Internet and like the funniest <laughs> stuff and like the most dramatic filmmaking out there. Unless unless I want to put it in that category on purpose. And, you know, cat videos are hard to compete with. That actually brings us, I guess, to you were involved with Anima from Damien Gillette, right? Yes. And it, we, we actually looked at that together and it's something that we felt that they did a really good job in translating work that was existing and putting it into this film medium. What was the process like for you being a part of that project? Overall, it was a great joy. I completely agree. I think that this is an excellent example of how you can draft essentially a movement script and really create it create a palette that is made for the screen some of the work is an adaptation of existing work and yeah. some of it we created specifically for the film but the reason that we used the existing work is because it was smack dab like hit on the head of exactly what the directors wanted and Tom also wanted to have this idea of this world like that's tilted against you and, and uh, is in a, sort of an impossible climb to be part of this music. And we already had the, the music from Tom and we had this Damian is absolutely fantastic choreographer. And Paul Thomas Anderson is an incredible filmmaker, director. So we had this great team and, you know, they we worked for a long time developing the movement for that and that that's exactly what i'm saying is this is a perfect example of what we should be putting out there because it's weird and it's cool and it's surreal and it's it has all of these elements of contemporary dance that's that you desire to incorporate in your live performance and it's not a recorded live performance they also put skid which is one of the pieces that we incorporated into anima 
they put the uh, version of that up on the internet for you to watch and it's sort of like a camera at the back of the opera house and you can watch the whole piece which is incredibly generous and the piece itself is really powerful and dynamic when you watch it in person and does the video recording of that from the opera house live up to that visceral experience of being there live i don't know did we make something interesting out of it that is in fact different and additive in the anima video i would say yes i think we employed it in a really interesting way so there's sort of like a direct comparison of the two and what was the collaboration like on a project like that was it did you feel that there was an equal input from the dance and choreographic side and the music and production team i thought that it was a very open and positive process and i'm really i was really impressed with uh, paul thomas anderson's approach and how open and willing he was to listen to others the we had a creative process without any of the other creative team there just with damian in brussels and damian works really hands on and is incredibly receptive to your feedback and of course we're making the movement there with him so that was a very collaborative process and as i mentioned i was really impressed that when we were in the space working to create these images on set i witnessed paul um, and experienced firsthand him really genuinely listening and accepting information and and recommendations and uh, from dancers that he didn't even know previously and the the fact that he can take the time to do that and obviously you know nod yes or shake his head no is up to him but it's not you know something that every producer director is going to do so uh, there was amazing dialogue between uh, the the whole team i thought it was really a, an example of yeah great working together do you know how the whole project was initiated did somebody see specifically maybe skid and like what was inspired by this and why that's the reason that they contacted damien or i'm not exactly sure how it got started but i know that there was previous contact my impression is that damian and uh, tom made something else to, oh of course uh, it the connection was started because my understanding is that tom of course made the soundtrack for suspiria the film uh, okay. damian choreographed suspiria so my my impression is that how they were connected and they stayed in touch because of that and then there was interest in skid and then when tom was going to release this new solo album they were in contact about producing something on for it okay that makes sense cuz me and hayden we'd been speaking previously about this crossover point between kind of contemporary modern worlds of dance as well as more let's say pop culture because it's just widely known because of music and everything yeah and how yeah this collaboration for one is beneficial on both sides because you get very different and very interesting beautiful works of film for to complement the music but also hopefully to bring more awareness similar to what Palabalis got from having this space with the Oscars and everything more awareness of this world of theater to the general people absolutely i think the dance has stepped a bit more into the the eye of mainstream culture in the past decade and i think it's really fantastic for the art form so the reality of where we're at now is that everyone's digesting digital media much more rapidly and frequently than live media and going to a theater and i think it's more extreme in the united states 
where we don't have a culture of going to theater and dance in the younger generations, it's not an integral part of our lives. So I, th I think more so in, in Europe where I've lived, there's more of that culture. But yeah, I think that's getting any opportunity for people who are, you know, real thinkers and um, developing contemporary art to integrate that into mainstream culture and especially video to get it onto uh, these sort of platforms for culture now, Instagram and Facebook and these, you know, it's why, why not flood it with interesting thinking? True. But I guess the desired outcome is to just also get more people when it's possible back into the theaters to not limit dance to only being on these new platforms. No, I think, yeah, absolutely right. I think it's just about expansion. If anything, yeah. it's like, it's a little, little bait, you know, you gotta put a little bait <laughs> on the line and throw it out. And then once they is <laughs> real, man. Yeah. <laughs> The beautiful things about dance is, and that it's unique in the art forms, it's it's so ephemeral. It's this live, visceral, fleeting experience. And when you're looking at a metal statue, it's a very different thing. And there's beauty in that because it lives on. But the pleasure of the ephemeral experience is something unique and beautiful about dance, in my opinion. So why not reel them into the theater? Yeah. Well, someone who does this really well, I think, is who you work with now is with Eastman. Like, I think City Larby Shakoi has one of the biggest commanding or like he, he has such a he, he has such a far reach across the boundary of purely contemporary kind of the closed off space of dance, possibly because he does so many cross collaborations with artists, but also his work manages to speak to a broader audience than just our niche of artists. Yeah, I think it's something that he does incredibly well is, is work across boundaries. And I think it is something that defines him as a human, not only as a, as an artist and, and that he as an artist has, has grown out of something that's across boundaries um, from his upbringing and, and from living in Belgium that is this hub for international um, access and travel and uh, the the community here is so diverse and to to be growing up in that environment and to it, it was a natural starting place I think for him to be looking out across the sort of things that you can the the genres the places that you can inter interact with in contemporary dance and and then of course the Belgian system is really integrating uh, and sort of you know, I don't know pushing the boundaries but like smearing the boundaries altogether there are no boundaries <laughs> between music and uh, dance and theater it's so it's so, they're all just integral parts of one another so he has that coming and then he has himself and the the amount of different genres as you've said that he's incorporated into his work is is really inspiring for me and one of the reasons I love working with him and the way I love seeing his work is you can almost expect these contrasting or seemingly contrasting flavors to coalesce into something really beautiful on stage in front of you. Yeah, because I met you when you were working in Gothenburg on Stoic, and I've never seen so many crossing points of just amazing artists or art forms from the set design costume, obviously the dancers, the choreography, the composition, as well as the musicians. Like, how many did it different background musicians were there again because you had four where well, there's four musicians and there's four distinct backgrounds and Gabriel yeah. is from Italy Tsubasa is Japanese 
Then we have um, El Arbi is uh, from Morocco, is he singing in Arabic? And Caspi is from the Congo, is he singing in Lingala? It's like four different languages, four different countries, four different cultural backgrounds, all different kinds of instruments. I mean, it's really, yeah, it's really amazing. And then, and then at the like, part of the beautiful thing is as a performer getting challenged to then learn singing, learn how to sing in Arabic and you know, then learn how to sing in Lingala and, you know, then learn how to play the guitar while you're singing Lingala. It's like just, it's, yeah, it's amazing. You're, you get pushed as a performer so much and, and Larby asks that from his cast. There's spoken word, you know, there's text and there's singing and there's movement and there's, it's like what needs to be in this piece will be in this piece. And that includes learning new skills. So you're welcome and <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Having having kind of a window into the creative process, do you like recognize something that for him maybe pulls all these disciplines together? Like what makes it cohesive to bring all these different things together in one room? I think that Larby believes in the power of dance and music to heal real issues in the world. And I think that I'm speaking from my own perspective here, so I hope if he hears this here... <laughs> Sean, what are you putting words in my mouth? But yeah. <laughs> I, I love Larby, and hopefully he knows that it comes from love. But I, I think that he really believes in this power of healing that music and dance can bring. And I think that he works consciously to bring these different aspects together in the same space and occupy like a beautiful moment together as a small step in working towards addressing and healing some of the larger issues in humanity and i think that he does it in some some of his pieces are quite political and some are less political and sometimes it's more of an aggressive stance on this and sometimes it's a more passive stance can we have a group of people from all over the world singing together in one of their native languages and what does that mean just just that just a bunch mm -hmm. of people from all over the world coming together to experience a beautiful moment i think that's a really big part of why why these things come together yeah it's certainly not by accident it's really it takes a lot of st strategic planning to get these people from all over the world myself, <laughs> myself included <laughs> uh, eastman and scheduling is definitely <laughs> something Ooh. it's uh props to the office people actually on that though how is it working in eastman because it seems like it might i mean we've done a couple of pieces from <clears throat> lobby and normally the assistants are sent from Eastman, but it seems like all the dancers that are dancing for the company are assisting him as well. Yeah, well, Larby has this sort of like, uh, <laughs> his hands are stirring a lot of different soup pots, you know, and uh, he does need people who he can rely on and he can trust to act on his behalf. And he's always like monitoring everything, um, making sure that it's all sort of up to quality control and also that he's he's the one who's uh, directing the project you know it's like you don't if you sign up when you get his name on it he's gonna make sure that it's it gets his stamp of approval <laughs> before he strips it out but yeah he has um a lot of people that have worked with him really intimately on even if it's just one project and it's sort of become they they that person is wrapped around that project you know like roots of a tree going into the soil and 
he he will then rely on that person to preserve the structural integrity of that product. And certainly not everybody that passes through Eastman at some point is going to be like out there representing Larby on the road, but yeah. but he works really hard to surround himself with worthwhile people. Uh, and I'm honored to be one of those people. So then you, you end up with a pool of humans that are, are interesting thinkers and powerful physical movers and then you can rely on those people to help you do the you know achieve the things that you want to achieve you spoke about like keeping in structural integrity so people bringing his kind of library of work to other companies but you've also been the choreographic assistant on him making new work like what himself and the irish dancer colin dunn made the name is slipping me now yes yeah session which yeah i got to see the premiere in dublin which was great yeah what is your position in that role because you're are you just the outside eye? Are you kind of directing then since he uh, is inside it as a performer? Uh, each project really dramatically changes. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, the uh, the project where I met you I, when we were working up with uh, Gothenburg Opera Dance Company, in that project I'm a performer in the piece and I was a choreographic assistant. And the responsibilities come and go, but it's I think Larby was has been incredibly generous with like listening to my ideas a lot and sometimes there's more a formal label on like the fact that he's listening to my ideas and uh, sometimes it's not as important because I, I think in like everything that I do with him which is something that he's been incredibly patient with me on is that I'm just like I have so many ideas do you want to hear them like wow I, you know I have ideas too <laughs> do you want to hear them and I'm like sorry I love you <laughs> And so I, I, what it, what is really entailed to be a choreographic assistant? I mean, it entails like a lot of nuts and bolts preparation type stuff and helping to keep Larby organized when he's working on the project. It's like, here's the stuff that we researched. Here's all of the, the music that we've looked at so far. Here's the text and the stuff that we've seen on YouTube that's been inspiring. I have notes about everything we've talked about. Is this sort of thing you're like the, the like the bookkeeper for the artistic you know, file cabinet of the process? And then when he goes like, but like, what uh, phrase haven't we used or what uh, music or am I missing? Like, you have to be able to say like, oh, it's this. You're focused on this right now, and it's like your job to have your brain wrapped around the whole thing. And he's has a lot of stuff going on. I also have a lot of stuff going on, but not as much as him. And it's so it's like being a support and I, I try to bring like a lot of enthusiasm, sort of <laughs> a strong suit of mine. And yeah, it's it's about a, a lot about generating material in my experience. Larby's working with concepts and ideas and generates material himself also, but he also relies on you a lot to, under his direction, come up with material that will then be employed in the process, maybe in the final product. And do you also have input into generating concepts and ideas and tasks, or that's mainly his domain? No, certainly. I think that's, for me, one of the really interesting things is that they start as concepts and conversations, these pieces. And especially when you're working as a choreographic assistant, you are there from the earlier side of the process. And so it's a conversation. And it's just as... You, you know, you're chatting with your friend and it's like over the course of an hour, it turns from spaghetti that you ate last night to like the, the car that you'd love to own someday. 
these things have a natural progression that is sort of sometimes untangible, but you, regardless of how it's traced or not, you end up at a certain point. And you, even if you don't say like, well, that was my idea, because like, it's a conversation. And when is like, the, the end result is just a natural progression of this whole thing that we've been creating together in a seamless way. It's not like, well, the next thing I'm going to say is my idea. So I want that on the record, you know, but of course it's all created in when I work with Larby under the umbrella of, of Larby. So he's, he's my boss. I'm his engineer. <laughs> but to come back to session, is that not a difficult role to take then? Because your boss is the one performing and you're in a certain yeah, way. Absolutely. That, that, uh, is not, uh, it requires some finesse to, to walk that line when you, and, and also Colin is a really super talent and he is, he's, he's his own boss. He, he makes work in his own right. Usually it's solo work and he was coming in and then I'm just like this young guy on the outside, like, Hey guys, you want some feedback? And they're like, who are you? Uh, I'll go get some coffee. But I have to say Colin was just, I, I loved working with Colin. I thought he was a sweetheart. And um, he also um, brought his own assistant from Ireland, wonderful woman, Laura. And uh, that, that project for me was really uh, expansive because I also... Uh, one of the other performers and the composer for the show, Michael Gallen, who's all, also an Irish native, has uh, we developed a friendship from that, and and we've continued to have an artistic dialogue outside of that. So, no process is without its challenges, but it's also not without its rewards if you can have an open eye to see them. Cool. Uh, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of navigating that goes on when you're when you're offering feedback to anybody especially uh, some like talented world famous performers who also happen to be your employers yeah this is a bit of a segue but since you're mentioning like working with extremely famous and talented people in the movie which movie was it uh, little um, women little, in little women you worked with emma watson right i did <laughs> Please tell me you've maintained a friendship with her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish. My heart's beating fast just thinking of her. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> uh, she was absolutely a dream to work with. Uh, I was really shocked at how just down to earth she was. And like, she's like, oh, man, you're like, I got to show you this video on my phone. Like, hold on a sec. It's like, I don't know, maybe you've seen it, but shows me this really interesting dance video. I was, I was a bit like, you know. Uh, what 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 kind of dance video is she gonna show me on her phone? You know, but in the end, it's this amazing video. Um, I think it's called Fred Astaire with a stomach full of nachos and Valium or something like that. So I was like, oh, she's like an incredibly cool, arty, intelligent woman. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so on on Little Women, did you? Uh... Were you just there as a dancer or you were creating some Not a scene for them? Or? As a dancer, I was uh, lucky to receive a call from an old uh, colleague of mine who went to the same school as I did and was working as an assistant in creating the choreography. Um, Monica Bill Barnes was the choreographer for Little Women and she's uh, just a real spark. This woman is fantastic. 
Monica Bill Barnes, an American dance maker and performer. And uh, so somehow they had an audition and they weren't 100% convinced that they got who they were looking for. And it's a period drama and it's set in mid 1800s America, Civil War era. And you have to look a certain part in order to be, you know, taking place in these dances. It was pre-civil rights. You got to be like a sort of pasty pale white person to be at these this New Year's Eve party in the mid 1800s. So my friend Alex, I think, went like, I know a pasty pale guy who can dance. <laughs> um, and so I was asked to come be part of that. The, that, that. I made that up in my head. I don't know if that's like, that's sort of what I assume is what happened. But uh, so, yeah, he basically I got a call and he said, hey, man, would you be available for this thing? It's going to be like 10 days, I think, in and out. Um, less than that. Some rehearsal. Uh, working on the stuff in the studio. Yeah, so I said, yeah, I'd love to. Working with Greta Gerwig is absolutely amazing, the director of Little Women, who has produced some incredibly interesting work for film over the past, certainly in the past decade. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I really worked well with Monica and also her assistant, Flannery, who have a great dialogue. It's so nice to see their energy in the studio. We spent a couple days, and then um, Emma, who is sort of the... the featured actor who's in the scene came in and joined us for a couple days in the studio then we got out on set filmed it in three nights i think i don't know and in the end i'm in the film for you know eight seconds or something. <laughs> it's like you it's, a, it's just a window into how much work goes into preparing um film and uh in the end you're like wow i danced you know a hundred hours and it turned out to be eight seconds in the film like dang but working with emma for that week was really uh yeah, it was really great. It was, it was wonderful to see an actor who's, you know, not necessarily a dancer just be so game and so ready to jump in and just go, yeah, let's, let's do it. Uh, of course, it's a, in the movie, it's a, it's a social dance where, you know, in the mid-1860s, I think, Civil War era, I mean, United States, where, like, you wouldn't have been a professional dancer. Nobody there was. But you would have been regularly going to these social dances as social events. And so you would have had some practice, but nobody's a professional dancer. So yeah, it was great. There was this, there were, we had two choreographies and Emma had learned the first one. And so we're filming the first one and we're filming, we're filming, we're filming. And um, Greta Gerwig says, okay, that's great. Now let's just roll on the second one and see what that's like. And we'll get an idea of what shots we want to have. And she just looks at me like, I don't know the second one. And I was like, it's okay. Just follow along. Cause we're, you know, we're holding hands We're I'm leading her like a real partner dance, social dance. So like Monica Bill Barnes looks at me bright eyed, uh, like from behind the camera. And I was like, it's cool. Don't worry about it. And so we just go, we just go. Emma's just cracking up. She's like, what's happening? I was like, it's okay. Just jump. We're going to jump for two eights. And then we're going to circle around to the left. You're doing great. And we're just laughing. And at the, at the, it went really well. And then at the end, everybody was just cracking up and like they, they had cut. And like then Greta's like, what's going on? What's so funny? And I was like, I, she doesn't know this choreography. She just, I just led her through it. And Emma was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Like that just happened. Like nobody died. Like there's like a hundred people in the room swirling around and like washing by and the cameras and moving around. And uh, Greta was like insanely pleased at the natural atmosphere that had come up as that. And that's apparently what's in the trailer for the film. 
Oh, oh, that clip of us laughing as we jump around. She's just like, I don't know. It's like, it's okay. Just don't let go. <laughs> it's going to be fine. <laughs> so the fact that she was like, sure, let's, I don't know. Let's, let's go. I was like, the music's on. Let's just do it. And she's not even a dancer, you know? So it's like the fact that she's willing to jump in like that is really inspiring. Yeah, fun. While we're on the topic of famous people, Dylan said you really wanted to talk about Beyonce. Everybody's yeah. always interested <laughs> in the fact that I've contributed in some peripheral way to Beyonce clips, but I am, um, I was supposed to be in... We don't actually have to talk about this. He's just, I'm, supposed yeah, to... yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just bitter. Cause I was supposed to perform in ape shit. I remember you told me you like you dance in the water, in the fountain in front of the Louvre behind Jay-Z, but I and wasn't, you... Surprised I got cut. <laughs> you weren't the right skin tone. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, honestly, like I should, it, there's a beautiful and powerful message in that video and it, it's uh, I don't belong in that message. Where are the dancers from, actually, from that video? Most of them are Beyonce's dancers. She was on tour in Paris. And then Madoki. Yeah. She, so she asked Larby, who had choreographed some live stuff for her before, including the Grammy Awards when she was pregnant. Um, to She was like, hey, I'm in Paris. I want you to choreograph a new number for my live show. Can you do that? And he was like, sure. So he goes to Paris. And then she was like, actually, while we're here, we're going to shoot a music video. Can you do that, too? He's like, okay. So, we, we just casually rented out the Louvre, you know? <laughs> yeah, for, for two nights. Real casual. Jeez. So we worked on developing material for it. So, you know, I'm happy to have donated some some sick moves to uh, both Apeshit and um, Spirit. Spirit. Spirit from the Lion King. All the hip rolls are you, are they? These hips don't lie. <laughs> But yeah, so so most of the dancers were already there on tour, and then Larby brought in Josefa, uh, Princess Madoki, and I don't know if anybody else was from Eastman for that. I think it was just Josefa, and then for Spirit, he also brought in um, Nick Coutier, and uh, I think some other people from Eastman also. Ebony Williams, I think he brought in. Was it Ebony? I can't remember. But anyhow, there we go. We talked about Beyonce. Done. <laughs> that concludes part one of our discussions with Sean. In part two, you can look forward to him explaining his experiences with national television in America, more about Palobulus, their work ethic, which also stems into his own creative ventures that he's busy with at the moment, and lastly, a task inspired by his work with Eastman, as well as some tips for dancers in general.